The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. And a special welcome to anybody who's new tonight. Evelyn is here in the corner if, uh, at the end of the program. If you have any questions, feel free to come up and introduce yourself to me or connect with Evelyn and she can help you with any questions you might have. And uh, just to let folks know, I'll be gone the next two Sundays. I'll be teaching a retreat at IMS, Inside Meditation Society, Massachusetts. Um, so I'll be leaving Thursday. So next Sunday... Mary Jo Meadow will be speaking, forgetting the title of her talk. And then the following Sunday night, Gabe Keller, a longtime community member and teacher here, will be speaking. So I feel quite fortunate that these folks are available. And we've been looking at the teachings around morality. And it's easy to get a little tight because... Appropriately so, we don't feel good enough about that. You know, we always feel we live in a compromised way, maybe take more than we need or weren't quite as generous as we might have been through somebody out of our heart or you know, all the different ways that we step on each other's toes. Sometimes not intentionally, but then later in hindsight, we realize what we did, how we spoke, that it was really harmful. So we don't, you know, we don't like this topic so much. And I mentioned last week when I introduced this topic of silas, the Pali word, sometimes we call that morality, sometimes ethical conduct or integrity. Or more specifically, it's this reverence for life or this commitment to non-harming. And it's not about getting there, getting to the place where I never harm anybody It's really this never-ending process. And here's the most important point. It's supposed to be, it is, the cause for happiness. So we don't want to think about morality as a burden, like, oh, what a burden, I need to be kind, or I need to be generous, or I need to take into account the rest of you when I live my life, and whether through some kind of conscious or unconscious ways I'm supporting your suffering, causing your suffering. But instead we want to see that any attention, any awareness, this whole awakening to this area of harming and non-harming, that it's enlivening, it's liberating. In the same way that being oblivious to how we create the causes or support the causes for suffering for ourselves and others, being oblivious is directly a cause for suffering. We think that, you know, being Americans and taking advantage of that privilege and being oblivious to what the implications are, like part of our wealth, part of the safety we experience, is because of choices that have been made through history by, you know, all of us, our government officials and all of us, like we're living on land we took from the people who lived here before we did. And it doesn't often come to mind anymore. Or 
part of the wealth of this country is because of slavery or because of other exploitive policies with other countries, other people around the world. So we don't think about our well-being, our safety, our stability, our nice little pocket of orderliness we call Minneapolis and St. Paul. We don't necessarily have that deep and wide view that understands that this relative comfort that many of us experience is, this is like the Buddhist view, it's like it is an interdependent arising. And in this case, like in terms of our culture, it interdependently arises because of the suffering of other human beings, let alone other species that our comfort, our well-being is based on. And it now the point isn't to be guilty about this. The point is to be sensitive to it, like to let it in. And then we're starting to get closer to the real meaning of morality or integrity or this commitment to non-harming. It's all about waking up, waking up to the innumerable interdependent causes and conditions that make this the way that it is now, this moment the way it is, the way it is. And not to be unaware and not to be guilty, but to be touched by the roots of suffering and how we're part of those roots, those causes of suffering. And see, quite naturally, it breaks our heart open. It hurts, but it hurts in a good way. And the alternative would be to have some idea like, what's my responsibility? What's your responsibility? As a way of protecting ourselves. So we use some story about like, I'm not responsible for that. That's somebody else's responsibility. I don't need to worry about that. So now the question is, is this difficult opening, right? Becoming more sensitive, becoming more sensitive to these innumerable interdependent causes and conditions and how we are all interdependently responsible for each other and the happiness and unhappiness we're experiencing. Is that actually liberating, enlivening for us? And the the key is like, we don't have to understand it conceptually. We just have to be touched by it, be sensitive to it. We don't have to figure it out like how I'm responsible, how I'm part of the different injustices there are in the world. We just have to be awake and to know like even the relative safety and comfort of having this space, like this also is a conditional arising, that we're all here together, that there are these teachings. Like think about the amazing twists and turns through history, all the women, all the men, all the people and their busy, difficult lives who somehow connected with these teachings and in their busy, challenging lives did their best to develop more wakefulness, more kindness, more wisdom. And one generation after another for so many generations, so many hundreds of years, and now Amazingly, at this particular corner, at this particular place, there are people who are also interested and in a way we're directly receiving 
it's like a transmission from previous generations of wise folks. Now we're catching the drift, you know, we're the scent. Sometimes wisdom in the Buddhist tradition is talked about as a scent. That it is, it's said like it's a scent that can even go against the wind. Unmistakable. When somebody has this integrity, this deep understanding of non-harming, like a scent that goes against the wind. It goes to all realms of existence. And we kind of get this, like when we're around somebody who has a lot of integrity, a lot of fearlessness, a lot of clarity, a lot of natural kindness and generosity. It, it is, there's something about seeing somebody like that. And it's not like a show. It's not like they're trying to be good or trying to be wise or trying to be compassionate. It's them being effortlessly who they are and it's quite beautiful and magnetic in a way. We call it like a spiritual charisma. And we tend to be, if we're sensitive enough, we tend to be attracted to those people. And it can cause problems, right? We can, it's like what we, what we're really attracted to is some intuition that this is possible for me too. But we tend to want to like put those people on a pedestal or something like that. Instead of, what did you do? <laughs> like, how did you get that way? What can I do to be like that? To be that grounded, that fearless, that naturally kind, right? To be kind, we have to be fearless. The only reason we're not kind is I'm too busy being self-protecting, you know, protecting my thoughts, my opinions, my stuff. And so I'm just too busy to be kind, to actually be sensitive to what's going around, going on around me and responding naturally, wholeheartedly to what's going on around us because we're self-absorbed into our dramas. So last week I talked about, and I think this is a, you know, as we reflect on these 10 beautiful qualities of heart, we want to see them not as big shoulds, right? These 10 perfections of the heart. This list is called the paramis. And for those of you who want a little bit more support for your study, there are two books you could get if you want. One you have to pay for, Sylvia Borstein's book. She's a wonderful Buddhist author in this tradition of Buddhist practice. She's one of the founders of Spirit Rock, one of our grandmother institutions on the West Coast. And it's Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, Practicing the Perfections of the Heart the Buddhist path of kindness. So that's one book you can get. And then another book you can actually download online. Um, you can get the hard copy from a monastery and it's parami, which is the word for the 10 perfections of the heart. And it's parami, ways to cross lives floods. And it's by Ajahn Sushito, S-U-C-I-T-T-O. He's a Western Buddhist monk um, from England and teaches both uh, in Europe and in the States. Wonderful teacher. He's been a monk. I think he's getting close to 40 years now as a Buddhist monk. And uh, I think he maybe just resigned as abbot of uh, Chitta Viveka in England, a monastery in England. So those are some texts you can use to support your study. And these 10 perfections... 
there are these qualities that are the causes for happiness, not a big burden. So there's generosity, and now we're doing morality. And then from there we go on to renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resoluteness, um, loving kindness, and equanimity. So these are the ten qualities, ten perfections of the heart. Ten, you could say, causes for real happiness. And of course, if you really develop, perfect any one of these, you're going to open to all ten of them. You can't really unpack the this integrity of non-harming or kindness without being patient or truthful or resolute, having a lot of energy, wise, patient, right? They all come together. So as we reflect on morality, and specifically how can morality be a cause for suffering? So last week you might remember I broke it down just to help us remember three ways that we directly, immediately experience the happiness of morality. Now, like the first, it's so easy to think of having to restrain myself from like acting out. If somebody pushes my buttons and I get irritated and I want to say something, you know, even on the surface it may seem rationally appropriate to say this, but underneath it's really a slap. I'm really trying to, you know, get that person because they've irritated me. So if we're practicing and we're sensitive, so one thing we're going to be sensitive to is that our heart has just been hurt, right? We that trigger has been triggered and it hurts and we're aware. And now we're aware we want to hit back and we're not ashamed of that wanting to hit back because that's nature. I mean, in conventional language, we say, I want to hit you back or I want to get even with that person. or You know, it isn't right that that person said that to me. Somebody's got to put them in their place. I mean, we have ways to make it seem more appropriate but basically, we want to hit back. And so, we see that impulse, and we're not ashamed of it because that's how it is. That's the way this mind, this heart is conditioned. But we also understand it's not going to help. So, we can feel, we can experience the happiness of having breaks. B-R-A-K-E-S. Someone came up to me at the end of the morning talk, because I gave this talk this morning at the 1030 group, and she said, were you talking about breaks, B-R-E-A-K-S? <laughs> but we're so happy we have breaks, like, just because I want to hit back, just because I want to say this to you, doesn't mean I have to say it to you, because this mind, this heart, this personality now has breaks. I know, I understand this power of restraint. Don't, honey, don't do that. It's not going to help. Sure you can say that. No one can stop you if you want to say that. But understand, if you say that, this is the probable outcome. Hearts will be hurt. Yours included. Is that what you want? Didn't think so. So honey, don't do that. And this is a real cause for happiness. You know, like 
You can go into a difficult meeting on Monday with people that really irritate you, but you can go with confidence knowing that I have the power of restraint. I have learned how to keep my mouth shut or how to do what needs to be done. So sometimes the restraint is holding back. Sometimes the restraint is not believing that you have the power to do what needs to be done or that you have enough wisdom to do what needs to be done. Or maybe it doesn't need to be done perfectly, but still it needs to be done. So restraint means we're restraining that which the mind intuits isn't going to help. We don't do it. We don't go there. And of course, sometimes the biggest motivation, the biggest intention in the mind is the least skillful. It's interesting how when we're not mindful, we're basically destined to act out the first and biggest intention that arises in the mind because we're not aware of other options. We feel the impulse to take something that's not ours. And because there's no other impulse, we just, well, that's who I am. I am the guy who's inclined to take that. So we do. But when we're mindful and that impulse, it's still going to arise. Just because we're mindful doesn't mean we have a different personality, a different conditioned set of habits. It just means one of our habits is to be reflective, to be reflectively aware. Oh, this intention, this compulsion is arising in the mind. That's what mindfulness gives us. But it's just a compulsion, just an intention. Are there other intentions? Well, there may be not many or none that are as loud or big as this intention, but there's this very quiet intention, which is maybe let's just leave it alone. Maybe I'll just walk out of the room and not say anything. Or maybe I'll say, I don't think I can have a skillful conversation right now, so I'm going to leave. Right? So there are these other intentions. They're just not, they haven't been watered by with practice. You know, we haven't reinforced them. The reactive patterns coming out of greed or fear or aversion, those often get more practice. So restraint is a cause for happiness. And it's really great. And we'll ha- I'll save some time for a discussion. And it'd be nice to hear some examples when you restrained yourself from doing something that you intuited would be harmful to yourself and others and noticing the good feeling. Right. So like at the end of the night, before, as you're getting ready for bed or lying there in bed, you could make yourself really happy by remembering all the things you might have done, but you restrained yourself from doing today. You know, I could have, instead of an hour of TV, I could have watched three hours of TV. You know, instead of one big bowl of ice cream, I could have finished the whole half gallon. And now they don't even make half gallons. Have you noticed? It's a quart and a half now. And they, they're just sort of banking on that we just aren't mindful enough to notice that somewhere somebody made the decision, it's probably collusion, they're never going to notice, right? Because they used to come in half gallons, now it's a gallon and a half. Most brands, there's a few, and if you're interested, you can check with me later. <laughs> I'm so impressed, Trader Joe's, you can still get a half gallon of ice cream at Trader Joe's. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Where was I? 
<laughs> so the happiness of restraint. So it would be good to sort of remember like all the little big ways that we restrained ourselves and actually feel the happiness. Like it's a kind of empowerment that we can trust the mind, the habits of the mind. They're not all bad habits, right, in the mind. Some of them are good. And we need to publicly in our mind, consciously in our mind, acknowledge, however feeble it might be, we do have some power of restraint. Otherwise, you know, we'd be in trouble. If we had no restraint and we just acted out our habit energy, we'd be in jail or dead or in deep trouble, right? Because restraint protects us. I can now be around people I find really attractive and I'm not afraid I'm going to do something stupid. I'm in a, I'm married. I'm in a committed relationship. Um, and that feels good. It's actually useful if you live in this world where you are going to be around people you find attractive, not to be afraid of making mistakes, right? That's really a useful power to have. Or I can be around your nice cars or your nice electronic devices or your nice clothes without feeling I'm going to take something that's not mine. And that feels good too, right? I don't get lost in envy as much as I used to. Unless you have a really simple, beautiful cabin on the south shore of Lake Superior, that's still an edge for me. But other things I, I tend to be okay about not being envious and imagining having it when it's not mine. So there's another kind of happiness too. This is a more refined happiness of morality. So one is the happiness of restraint. And then we have the happiness of a, a different kind of skill where instead of noticing that I can restrain myself, refrain from acting out these habits that are already there in my mind. I may not want those habits, but those conditioned patterns are there in my heart and mind. But now we're noticing the positive habits of mind, like how in certain situations it's relatively easy for me to be generous. Not always, but when my cat lies down and exposes her belly, about 50% of the time I'm willing to give her some time. This, you know, I got to squat down or sit on the ground next to her and kind of pet her like she wants to be pet. And uh, when I actually show up for her in that way, it's like it's like a really beautiful thing that generosity, like showing up and letting this this habit to be kind and generous letting it manifest and express itself. And there's that sort of beautiful moment. And we do this in all kinds of little ways. We smile at somebody. We could be absorbed in our own world, but we kind of peripherally sense we're about to walk past another person. And we make the effort to raise the head and look at the person and acknowledge, here's another human being doing their thing in life. I see you. I connect with you. And whether we say hi or whatever culturally we've been programmed, like what's that song by Louis Armstrong, you know, all these ways we say I love you, right? There are many ways to say I love you. 
It's not okay for us to pass someone on the street and say, I love you. But there are ways to say I love you to people. Nice day, isn't it? Right? Something like that. I even talk to dogs when no one's around. You know, dogs, you know, in their the yard, fenced in. And I'll just say, hey, big dog. Something like that. Which is basically a way of saying, I love you. Or I, I see you. You know, we're having this moment. This half second together or whatever. A couple seconds together. So, another way we be we can be happy with morality is we're actually acknowledging these beautiful habits of our mind. And when we get good at that, we start acknowledging other people's habits that are really beautiful. We don't miss it. We see somebody being generous. We see somebody being patient. We see somebody being tender. You know, you see a mother at the grocery store with her kid and she's just like amazingly patient. And it just, we just meet that. We see it. We let it touch the heart. And it's a really powerful experience. This morning, um, during the discussion time, a woman shared an experience she had probably 20, 30, maybe even 40 years ago when she was in the Peace Corps. She looked kind of my age, you know, mid, late late 50s, maybe even a little older. And uh, so this is a long time ago when she was a young adult and she was um, in Africa, I think it was. I forget exactly where she was. But anyway, out in the rural area, and uh, she was waiting for her ride to bring her back into town because she was at this country school teaching and walking back into town, waiting for this, you know, going to meet the car that was going to take her back. And she came across this old woman who uh, was walking toward her, carrying some green beans, uh, just like a couple handful of green beans that she had taken from her garden. And evidently, this was a really poor part of this country. And this older woman just handed her some green beans and thanked her for teaching out in the village where she was. And it was just such a powerful moment because in that moment, they just had a moment, the two of them, where the, the Peace Corps volunteer, this young woman from the United States, had enough wisdom to fully and completely... Initially, her reaction was, this woman should not be giving me her green beans because she needs them a lot more than I need them. But she had the wherewithal to completely and generously receive her gift, just to take it and to really appreciate it. And then because of that, the beauty, both seeing this woman's generosity and seeing her willingness to receive it, right? she saw something really beautiful, what we call sila, this morality. And 20, 30, whatever number of years later, it's still this monument in her life, like a memory she can bring to mind that has this beautiful scent, unforgettable scent. And this is another cause for happiness when we are able to recognize And this is like, in a Buddhist sense, what we mean by self-esteem or a beautiful sense of uh, like recognizing basic goodness in our heart and another person's heart. And this is really, so this is just on a relative level of feeling good about ourselves, being able to recognize what's beautiful. So we, we 
actually experience happiness when we're, we have the confidence we can put the brakes on and refrain from acting out unskillfully. And it gives us a lot, a sense of empowerment to go into the world, difficult world, where our buttons are going to be pushed and with some confidence that most of the time we're going to avoid making big mistakes and setting emotion suffering. And then with more and more practice, we begin to start noticing that there are actually some beautiful qualities. And the funny thing is, they're beautiful, but it's not personal. Like we see ourselves saying something to somebody or acting in a particular way, or we see somebody else doing something really beautiful. And the thing is, we see it as a kind of nature. You know, in the same way that if you watch a a dog take care of her puppies, or, uh, you know, any sort of activity of nature and how perfect it is, how beautiful it is, well, we start seeing acts of kindness, tenderness, generosity, and just general skill, skillfulness. We see it as an, an impersonal activity of nature. And, but it doesn't take away from how beautiful it is. Just because I didn't do it, but there was sort of the activity of this body and mind, it makes it even more beautiful that it's nature and not me doing it. It's like I even, you know, it sounds a little weird or even conceited to say this, but sometimes, like, I'm so moved by something I say in a talk. It doesn't mean I can actually sort of live up to what I've said, but it was like really moving. And it doesn't feel personal. It doesn't feel like, well, you know, I'm wise or I said that. Those things don't even come to mind. It's just like, yeah, that was beautiful. That was really useful to hear that. And I'm sure... But we have to learn how to recognize these moments when the goodness of our heart, our our mind, our heart, our body, not under the influence of greed, anger, and delusion, not under the influence for those moments of self-centered view, expresses itself. It could be, wow, wow, that's possible. And we see it in other people. And it's a real cause for happiness. So this is another thing we can do as we're going to bed. You know, not just remembering that we restrained ourselves from eating too much ice cream, but remembering all the little, ordinary, but beautiful moments when there was a natural tenderness, a natural generosity, a natural skill. Like we just, we showed up, we were sensitive, and we responded appropriately in a moment. And it's just like, well, that was, that was good how we handled that situation. That was really good. Or how that person showed up in that moment. That was really beautiful. And if you want to know uh, like good topics for conversations with your friends, to share this kind of stuff with each other. Like the Buddha says this. I mean, it's a kind of an amazing list. He has a list of what you shouldn't talk about with your friends, like politics, bodies, you know, like, how toned your body is. I forget the whole list, but it it's the kind of things you'd expect probably are not worthy of conversation, but we tend to talk a lot about. And there are things that are worthy to talk about, like restraint is something to talk about, like gratitude for restraint. Yeah, I could have done this, but I didn't. <laughs> That's a good thing to share because it can like inspire your friend. 
And then all the beautiful moments where we were naturally generous or, you know, that just arose in that moment. And then there's a third kind of happiness that comes from morality where we start to notice moments where we're not even identified, like I kind of hinted at this a moment ago, we're not even identified with being the one who's kind or being the one who's wise or generous or, you know, taking care of all beings or taking care of ourselves in a wise way. It's like, it's the happiness of, it's not even that we're perfect, like, that personality is no longer making mistakes and acting out greed or acting out irritation. It's more of a deep, pervasive trust that awareness, awareness of the activity of the body and mind is the refuge. So we're not even trying to be good at this point because we realize Trying to be good is actually in the way of being good. Now remember, this doesn't mean our activity or the way we are in the world is perfect. It just means that we're letting nature purify the personality, right? The nature and, and in a way we're taking refuge in awareness or knowing. And this is Like in Buddhism, this is such a tricky area because we talk a lot about karma, cause and effect, that intentions matter, right? So if my intention is coming out of greed or aversion, then there's going to be karmic fruit that will not be skillful. But if my intention is kindness or generosity, well, that's like good karma, good fruit, good consequences come from that. There's always karma, cause and effect. Whether you're a fully enlightened being, you know, just for those who just speak theoretically, I'm certainly not there. I don't imagine anybody's there. If you are, let us know. <laughs> but, you know, we're still dealing with greed, anger, and delusion. So we're still creating karma. But there will be moments when this activity of being skillful or being unskillful will be understood as the activity of nature not me creating bad karma or me creating good karma, but just nature doing the work of nature, the activity of nature, just causes and conditions playing themselves out. Now, in a sense, there isn't a person concerned with the purification of the personality, becoming a better person. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a purification of the personality. Actually, the system gets cleaner faster the more we take refuge in the awareness and less obsessed about becoming the perfect person. But initially, we're a little desperate and we're just looking for better breaks to refrain, to restrain ourselves from acting unskillfully in the world. Then, only when we're pretty good at the breaks can we begin to notice that there are already some pretty good habits there. And the more we notice them, the stronger those good habits get. And then only then, when we are pretty good at seeing, recognizing those good habits, to be kind, to be generous, to be patient, to be loving, that we can just let go of being the good person. 
wanting to be the good person. And we just, it's like hands off. You know, like remember when you took your hands off the steering wheel of the bike or the handlebars? It's like, and it's a little bit like that in life too. You know, we could think, okay, Monday's coming, hands off. Just going to let Monday happen. And I, and awareness, I'm trusting that the awareness will provide the necessary feedback. So even when the bad conditioned habits of mind get activated and act themselves out, the awareness that will be the feedback mechanism. And the mind will see, oh yeah, this doesn't work. When I act this way, this gets set in motion, that hurts, but that makes an imprint in the mind. The mind now becomes the mind that saw. When you do this, this happens. So we're basically trusting the natural feedback mechanisms that are there when the mind is awake. So when somebody, like in the Buddhist tradition, when somebody is fully awake, that doesn't mean that in every single moment of their life they do the right thing in a sort of a relative conventional sense. It means that they're fully awake. So when they, and they're not acting out of greed, anger, delusion, but they may not know how to be skillful in this moment, but that's okay because they're fully present, if they act in a way that causes harm for themselves or others, they'll see that to whatever degree they can, and that will affect the mind stream. So then the mind in the next moment, in the next moments, will be the mind that got it. Oh yeah, that doesn't help. That wasn't good. Or oh, that worked pretty well. That seemed to work pretty well. So being awake is not the same as being fully psychic where you know everything, you know exactly how everything's going to unfold, and you never make any mistakes, right? No. It just means that the definition of being awake or enlightened is you're not operating out of self-centered greed, anger, and delusion. So all there is is the nature of the personality, the conditioned nature of the personality, acting itself out, and awareness. Clear, balanced, stable, in a sense, unshakable awareness. So that it's a learning machine. It's like a perfect learning machine. Because the personality is just like the activity of nature, just like wind, right? Or rain or water going down a river. It's just the nature, all of the conditioned habits of mind. It's just doing its thing. And there's this very stable, unshakable Awareness, aware of that river, that personality doing its thing. And the awareness allows for a perfect feedback. So that personality learns how to be skillful in the world. And there's a great example, and then I'll open it up for discussion in the Buddhist tradition. So the Buddha, as the story goes at least, had this powerful awakening under the Bodhi tree. Some of you know about this. After six years of arduous practice, doing really extreme ascetic practices, realizes that's not the way. He brought his mind into balance, took some food, sat down under the tree, had this powerful insight about the nature of the mind, and moved beyond the being trapped by the habit of greed, anger, and delusion, sort of inhabiting 
that self-centered sense of needing and wanting to get rid of and those habits no longer have been uprooted. And then didn't know what to do with that insight. And even thought, at least as the tradition talks about it, that it would be troublesome to try to talk to people about this. To, like how They're not going to get it. It's so amazing to to realize how to realize this possibility of not putting a self in the middle of this life, you know, as we operate in the world, not to construct a sense of a center or a me in the middle of it. How am I going to share that? So anyway, he spent, I forget how many weeks there, just sort of hanging out with his insight, like the result of the insight that he had, and eventually was inspired to see if he could share what he had come to know. And it's so interesting, the first person he runs into, it's like a complete, complete flop. Like, so the person recognizes, like the Buddha's walking one way and the other guy's walking the other way. And the guy who's running into the Buddha sort of senses like, this is not some ordinary human being. And asks, like, you know, what are you? What's happened? And the Buddha sort of launches into this, you know, I am awake. I am, basically freaks out this person like, <laughs> maybe so. He says something like, maybe so. And walks off the other way, like doesn't even pass the Buddha. He's like, I think I'll go this way. <laughs> and fortunately, the Buddha had several more weeks as he was walking to find his old spiritual buddies. He thought they'd be good to try to share what had happened to him first. And he you can just imagine that he had some time to reflect like, okay, how can I be skillful? Because I saw what happened there. The direct approach didn't help, you know. So, and his first talk is a doozy. It's the Four Noble Truths. Some of you know that. But it's even today, 2,500 years later, it's a it's a shocking and pragmatic talk and it's just like you know two type pages it's not that long and even for someone who hasn't practiced much it makes so much sense just on an intellectual level and there's nothing extra in it so it's like really great now he just needed one mistake to learn you know the rest of us we need lots of mistakes but eventually we can trust the learning And we can let go of being the one who wants to be free, being the one who wants to be kind, being the one who wants to be more generous. And we take refuge in awareness. And not even being the one who is aware, who is awake, who has to pay attention. So these moments, and you all, even now, even for people who are beginners, there will be moments where your awareness, your mindfulness will be effortless. And you know how we ruin those moments? Is we, out of habit, think, no, 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 no. I have to be aware. I have to be mindful. And so, in that moment where we were already awake, already present, already just knowing knowing the way it is, we insert a somebody called the practitioner who has to do the practice. And we fall back into greed, anger, and delusion. So when we're fine, when we find ourselves in those, and the characteristic of this third kind of happiness is the happiness of effortlessness. 
or the happiness of everything happening on its own. The practice, everything is happening on its own. So the practice there is just to trust, to leave it alone, to leave everything alone. It's really the non-doing. That's how we practice in those moments. Just leave it alone. You don't have to do anything. And then other times we'll be mostly in our kind of more dense habit energies. And then we require the happiness, you know, finding the happiness of restraint. And other times when we'll be in a more uh, happy place, good place, and we can just appreciate what's good. As an ordinary human being, we're, instead of requiring good entertainment and good food, what sustains us is the nectar of good actions. It's like literally, I mean, we still have to eat, of course, and breathe and drink water, but what really sustains us is seeing what's beautiful in ourselves and in others. It's the actual fuel for our life. And then later, the fuel is letting go, letting be, or trusting. It's like that free fall. That's the happiness. So those are three kinds of happiness related to morality that you can just begin to recognize in your life. Restraint, seeing what's good and beautiful, and the happiness of uh, non-doing, or the happiness of letting be. So it would be nice to hear from some folks. We've all learned a lot around this area of harming and non-harming. Remember to point the mic right at you. Who would like to begin? Yeah, Danielle, thanks. Um, Hi. Uh, So there's two things I've just been reflecting on... um, sort of non-harming over the last couple weeks. And um, it's been really interesting. The first thing I've noticed is just how much harming I produce. Um, and it's it's both um, good, as Mark said, it, it feels good to recognize it, but it's really overwhelming. And it feels like a really big hill to climb. Um, and the second thing is... Um, I have a sort of personality where I like to tease people and sometimes that's in a very loving way and sometimes it's kind of that jab. Um, and something that I noticed is that I seem to have this impulse, you know, the impulse comes up to say something that's a little bit nasty and I, um, I think for some reason my mind feels like if I have the impulse, I have to act it out. And what's been really cool is um, resisting it and I don't necessarily notice a good feeling, but I notice that nothing bad happened that I didn't say it. Um, so this morning, for example, my um, my roommate's uh, boyfriend was around, and my roommate and her boyfriend have a thing where they forget to turn off appliances. And um, I've brought this up before, but um, there's just something that came up that was an opportunity for me to kind of do one of those jabs at my roommate's boyfriend, and I just didn't do it. And then we just kept talking and it was like, oh, I can have an impulse and not act on it and everything will be fine. So. Thanks, Tanya. Who'd like to go next? Yeah, Nick in the corner here. Um, 
I had a experience with uh, kind of restraint and it was kind of a confusing experience, but it was interesting because I had someone observe it and kind of give me some feedback on what had happened that I really appreciated. I was, it was a stressful situation at work and a coworker of mine who had been having a hard time and was having a hard time making his shifts, um, called, called in again and was having really bad car problems and he was clearly really uh, stressed out about his car problems. And I'm a supervisor at my job and I'm supposed to, I feel like I'm supposed to be a really tough guy sometimes in that role, you know, and try to be really like, yeah, you know, like we need you here, like you gotta, but I got on the phone with this guy and he sounded so upset and he was like, Nick, I just, I can get my car, but I'm really having a hard, di- hard time and I don't think I can make it into work because I'm just like so stressed out, you know. And <laughs> I remember I was like, and like I like couldn't like think of what to do. I sat there and I was kind of like, uh and I said, I I guess it's like this now. That's what I said to you on the phone. I said, I, that's all I could say. I was like, so you can't come in. He's like, yeah, I can't come in. I said, well, I guess that's how it is now. I said, like I kept kind of saying that, like I'm like, okay, like I think we'll be okay, and I think you can just take it easy tonight. And like I like like kind of hung up the phone. I I, I part, part of me felt angry because it was kind of you know fr- it's frustrating to not have everyone there to cover our shift. You know, I, and I could feel that kind of energy. And the other part of me was like, this guy's just having a hard time. I don't really care. You know, we'll make it through the night, all right. We won't die here. You know, like it's gonna be fine. And as I hung the phone up, I kind of like was like, okay, like that was weird. And then my coworker <laughs> turned to me and she said, you know, I really appreciate how compassionate you were in handling that situation. And I was like. I just said something, I don't know if I was compassionate, like, walked away, but it was kind of like, it kind of was really nice for her to see that and, like, tell me that, because I probably wouldn't have said that to myself, and it it's kind of come up again, and my job is, like, more stressful situations like that come up to kind of remember that it is possible for me to be compassionate, even if I don't know what the heck the right answer is in some situations, so. Right, and we don't have to stop there. We just keep observing, because it will be interesting to see as you respond in different ways, like what does that set in motion? Because I think we'd all be interested. And uh, we shouldn't assume, it's like we know when we said that, like you described, Nick, we, we have some sense of the different intentions that were there, you know. And then now, but now we're wondering, like, what, was that the right medicine in that moment for as many, you know, for the people who were involved? Like, what does it set in motion? And it isn't about figuring it out, it's about observing, because we're really interested in the pragmatic consequences. How does it affect this heart? How can I, I mean, as best as we can understand, how does it affect those hearts? So you get a sense, like even that other staff person that said, you know, I really appreciate it. Like, it affected her heart. That's a little bit of information. And you kind of, get a sense like, well, what's reverberating now, even days later in your heart as you remember that situation? You know, what kind of taste, aftertaste does it have? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Other thoughts? What have you been learning about harming, this world of harming and non-harming? Oh, yeah, here, back here. And please say your name, too. My name is David, and I was just, one of the things I appreciate about what you shared tonight was the remark about how this is a worthy topic of conversation with our friends and loved ones to talk about how we're struggling to restrain ourselves. Restraint, or when we don't restrain ourselves, right? It's great. That's a great thing. Hearing you talk and hearing people share makes me feel less bad 
less broken and more like a human being. And, oh, I see, this is how humans are. Yeah. We all have these feelings. We have these impulses. And, oh, I see, this is, <coughs> this is a skill that we can learn. I've been working on this for decades, my whole life, of course, right? Yeah. And I can remember at work 15 years ago when someone would say something that I thought was stupid, I would just lay into them. I was quite mean, uh, especially if they were a manager. <laughs> no transference going on there or anything, but <laughs> but um, I was I was pretty harsh, and it took me years of observing that to say, oh, you know, these are not my father, and yelling at them isn't going to solve anything. And slowly but surely, I'm in a place now, decades later, where I don't yell very often at anybody for anything. I still have lots of challenges, but it's satisfying to see that skill grow with practice as you said putting new habits better habits in place of old ones yeah and and soon i don't know you could it'd be interesting at what point in your life you consciously started to recognize that shift in habit as something beautiful because i bet then exponentially it, it strengthened just because you could basically recognize it yeah. There's an interesting um, On Being show this morning, Krista Tippett's program on public radio. And she interviewed uh, uh, epigenetist. I think it is. Did anybody hear that? And they're finding that, like, this experience, you know, you talked about having problems with authority figures. Because we've all been traumatized. Some people extremely traumatized. So they've done research with people... Um, the second generation of those who survived the Holocaust, or even mothers who were pregnant during nine uh, during the tower attack on the towers in New York, and how the the next generation is actually affected by the stress of the of the previous generation, and uh, and so we're sort of all traumatized, and so when we have authority figures in our lives. We, that gets acted out. And we wonder why it's, I mean, even something as simple as having a boss. Why that, uh, you know, or a partner, or kids, you know, who aren't doing what we're saying. And then we, our response is so over the top, but it's because in different ways we're traumatized. And that's why things are so messy. And that's why we need breaks. And that's why, like David shared, you know, we need to start recognizing that we can set something new in motion. Thanks, David. I think we need to end here. It's 8.30, so we'll just take a few seconds to let go of the words. David, maybe you could pass the mic over to Evelyn. We're over here, so she can use it for the announcements. Appreciating the wholesomeness of being here together. And it should be relatively simple to appreciate the beautiful, harmonious community that we have. It may not seem earth-shaking, but it's quite beautiful for a group of people to gather on a Sunday night like this. So why not take the time to recognize that our intentions of being together are really beautiful, really wholesome.
Let it sink in. You know, it's different for each of us, but basically we're all here because we care about this life. And we have some intuition that it's possible to be wiser and kinder, more skillful human beings. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.